Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Yeah, it's always great to connect, guys. Yeah, busy week. Want to do two things on the show. One, a survey of it, like a rapid-fire week of developments on the Chinese election interference front. What did we learn? Maybe more importantly, what could happen next? And then on the back half of the show, let's talk about uh, tomorrow. It's going to be the third anniversary of the W. HO's official declaration of COVID-19 as a pandemic. Uh, and we had a terrific piece by economist, Calgary economist Trevor Toome this week, kind of setting out just potentially the deep economic scars this pandemic has left on Canada. So I want to get into that with you guys in the second half of the show. I think it's one of the more important pieces we published in the hub in the last week, and I urge everyone to check it out. But let's start with election interference. I want to come to you first, Stuart. Give us a top line of the week that was. Uh, what did we learn? What kind of prophylactic steps is the government starting to take here to try to fend off the growing chorus of criticism over its uh, seeming lack of a coherent serious response to the threat of Chinese interference. Yeah, actually, we have been so focused on the action at committees that I had to think there that actually, yeah, the announcements on Monday were this week by Justin Trudeau about how to kind of stifle this scandal. And he, I'm sure you're all aware of what a special rapporteur is. Um, <laughs> it's a, that's a new thing that Justin Trudeau has invented for this controversy. But I think the idea is here that the liberals are trying to stave off an inquiry um, which would be more public than they want and less in their hands than they want. It'll be a little bit out of their control. They're trying to kind of strangle this a little bit. Um, the problem they have, though, is that as we saw on Monday, Justin Trudeau made all these announcements about, you know, delegating a committee to look into this, the, the National Security Committee, making this uh, special rapporteur uh, position to look into it. But then we had two committee hearings this week where, you know, the, the opposition, including the NDP, were trying to get um, Justin Trudeau's chief of staff, Katie Telford, to committee for a three-hour grilling on this. Um, and the Liberals basically filibustered. We had a good story from Jeff Russ today showing you all the ways that they filibustered a committee to run out the clock before they could vote on this motion to bring Telford to committee. So as much as these moves by Trudeau have been an attempt to stifle it, the one side is the committees will still be, be there. The other side is that we've still had stories quoting intelligence sources from the reporters who are working on this. So um, hard, hard thing for the prime minister's disciple, and it's already out of the bag this week. Yeah, I would say uh, two things following on Stuart's observations. The first is the early, the narrative in the early week, which is the government was trying to course correct and effectively changing its position from the, the previous week, in which, of course, the message had been essentially nothing to see here stop asking questions. If anything, all of these questions just amount to racism. By the end of the week, uh, that course correction had proven uh, fleeting. Uh, the government was essentially back into its previous position of stonewalling 
both at committee, as Stuart says, but also in a question period where the prime minister was asked a series of pretty basic truth, you know, evidence-based questions that he refused to answer. Of course, there was a really awkward uh, scrum. Um, and so, you know, it only reinforces that a lot of these process announcements that he made on Monday were essentially, as Stuart says, trying to change the channel, not fundamentally getting at the the underlying issues that we've been talking about now on this podcast for a few weeks. The second point I'd raise, though, is something that Stuart ended with, which is one increasingly gets the sense um, that these issues are outside the control of both the government, but also the opposition. And that's because we seem to have something of an arms race between Global News and the Globe and Mail, each trying to uh, uh, break new insights into this story. And you know, I don't know, we'll get this rapporteur at some point, or maybe we won't, but it just seems to me his or her job is probably going to be superseded um, by the ongoing drip of new information um, being put out by these journalists. And, you know, Stuart and Rudyard, you guys have been in this business a long time. Someone once said to me, the way to handle a scandal like this is to figure out its kind of logical conclusion and get there as fast as you can. And it seems to me the government isn't doing that. But the logical conclusion is at some point we're going to find out when the government, what gov government knew, who knew it in the government and what the government did. And it seems to me everything uh, up until then is just going to be agonizing for the government and fodder for the opposition and for the hub roundtable. <laughs> Yeah, two observations and a comment. One, it's it's interesting to see in this uh, current contretemps, the the fallout or political fallout around this, that Trudeau's uh, fellow cabinet members have been conspicuously silent. Um, I mean, I, I haven't seen Christopher Friedland in my newsfeed in about a month. Um, Anon, you know, another serious uh, substantive minister of defense silent on this. What, what I feel I sense for that is that this prime minister with this particular scandal has done a different kind of uh, damage to himself and to his own political prospects. There's a feeling, guys, that a lot of the liberal intellectual and political elite have peeled away from him on this. And I'd, I'd like us just to conjecture on that. Why? Is it because of the possible errors, sins of commission and omission and a sense that, wow, these could be big, substantive? Is it because there's growing fatigue with his leadership inside the Liberal Party? Stuart, something's different here this time. It has a different feel. He's having to rely on, like, no-name backbenchers as, you know, the usual kind of political hacks who come out and spout these ridiculous kind of, you know, talking points. Um, what's going on here? And is this suggesting some, I don't know, shifting of the sands in the, in the, in the basement, the firmament of, or basement of the liberal party, which spells possible leadership challenges uh, and or leadership troubles for this prime minister? Yeah, there, there's a favorable and an unfavorable uh, hypothesis here. The favorable one is that this is um, one of those issues where they just don't know what's going to come. And you can feel that with the prime minister where um, there's just a kind of vagueness about everything he says. And it's either that he's deflecting so badly that that's how it appears or that he's just really worried. And this could be a scandal that existed at a very low level 
which might have trickled into places they don't know about. And they're just really worried about something they don't know about blowing up in their faces. I think that is possible. The other one is that people just know this is bad. And that is something that people will generally tell you privately, and then they you just won't hear from them publicly. And I think that's what we're seeing here is that the, the kind of tomfoolery at uh, committee hearings is just not going to make you look good. If you're a liberal MP, you are a backbencher who's basically falling on a grenade right now because you have to go out there and talk for an hour. Um, Ruby Sahoda had an unfortunate clip that we embedded in our story, just kind of ambling on about the Ottawa LRT um, and it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. There are some MPs who are good at filibustering, but most of them look silly when they're doing it. Most of them feel silly. It's not why they came to Ottawa. They don't want to be doing this kind of stuff. So um, it is kind of mortifying to be dealing with it with this. And people are more likely to fall on those grenades when they feel like the ship is in the right direction and they're doing things they want to be doing. So, Sean, let, let bring you in just with a little twist on this, because, you know, it's it was interesting. Again, they announced this rapporteur, this special rapporteur. Usually we call them imminent Canadians. I hope one day that I can too can aspire to be an imminent Canadian. It seems like a great gig. You get a lot of calls and I'm sure, what is it? 1200 bucks a day guys, or maybe those are McKinsey rates. I, I, I digress. But the, the point is they didn't even have a name to it. And it, again, it just kind of struck me as like, they are just operating in a complete, what I would call influence vacuum that all they have is what they have, which is uh, an embattled and uh, hunkered down PMO. They can't even get, you know, who are the two conspicuous suspects and the imminent Canadians says, well, it's usually it's Beverly McLaughlin or, you know, our former, uh, our former GG, David Johnson, you know, they can't even get them on the speed dial to put up their hand and say, okay, I'm, I'm the rapporteur. I'm the imminent Canadian. I don't know, Sean, I don't want to read too much into this, but I have this feeling of like, this is at an isolated prime minister in an isolated prime minister's office. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe I can draw on some of my own experiences you know politics is a team sport um there's an inherent kind of us versus them mentality that that emerges um both vis-a-vis -vis the media and the opposition parties and that can actually be a powerful source of co cohesion and even a kind of animating idea that gets people motivated and 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 supportive around around the leader um but that's usually happening when you feel like you're taking shots towards some kind of greater good you've made a controversial policy decision and you're out there defending it because it reflects your values or your priorities or whatever this one is funny right because if you're a, a minister outside of the realm of national security or you're a just a, a backbencher you're like i'm taking a, i'm on the front lines here i don't have any facts this is a a, a scandal caused by the prime minister and a small group of people around him and I'm going to stick my neck out and defend this when I don't even know what I'm actually defending because the prime minister isn't being forthright publicly. And I suspect he's not being forthright in caucus either. And so, um, you know, you just get the sense, as you say, Rudyard, that, um, you know, it's one thing to get out and defend a budget. It's another thing to get out and defend a scandal for which you had no involvement, uh, for which there's no upside, even with your kind of own voters, and for which you just don't know what you're ultimately defending. And I, I think for that reason, you know, it's 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 precisely the reason that, for instance, the prime minister has been having to kind of do a lot of the stick handling himself, uh, which in normal circumstances you would try to 
to to protect him or her. So I I think that's exactly right. I I, I have I wouldn't be surprised, guys, if uh, caucus meetings uh, on Wednesdays for the Liberal Party is getting kind of increasingly um, uh, the temperature is increasingly going up because people are going back to their ridings and they're they're fighting ghosts. Uh, and you don't get the sense the center is giving them much of anything to work with. And Stuart, you've got a, a prime minister, as we saw in these recent polls with, you know, uh, rising unpopularity, um, low approval ratings. Uh, you know, in a sense, I think this makes sense to me. What Sean's saying is he's having to use up political capital when he's seven years into uh, his prime ministership and his ratings aren't good. He's perceived as a net negative right now in terms of the party and its electoral performance. I mean, what happens to her when the cupboard's bare, when there's really no political capital left? Maybe there's a worsening scandal here. You know, I don't want to speculate, but it's kind of fun. Uh, it is a, is there just, it, you know, what happens? Do you back, does he back his way into some kind of bigger set of headaches with his fellow cabinet members and with caucus and, you know, is is a liberal leadership something that starts getting floated? Yeah, I I, I think the the always the problem with that line of thinking was you would say, well, who is going to come in and replace him? Who's agitating behind the scenes? If you believe the Mark Carney thing, he's not on the hill, so that makes it a little more difficult for him to you know grab people in the hallway and stuff like that. But I, you know, Melanie Jolie has um, I think comported herself surprisingly well in foreign affairs. Like I think the bar right now is no colossal mess ups, and She's basically done that. She was at committee yesterday. The only story that really came out of that, other than Jeff's excellent story about all the filibustering, was about Michael Cooper saying something sarcastic to her. And uh, her ability to kind of jujitsu that, I mean, it's not hard <laughs> with the way the media will jump on this, but her ability to jujitsu that into a story about Michael Cooper was pretty smart. Um, so I don't know. I think we could be seeing that. I, If I were guessing what the liberals are thinking right now, they have a lot of stuff they really want to be doing right now in the House of Commons. Um, so purgation, I think, is that would be a huge step for them. Um, I would be super surprised if they did it anytime soon. Um, but the more this makes them bleed out, the more I think that becomes a possibility. The idea of limping to summer um, and then trying to reset over the summer is also less appealing. So um, it is really hard to see how this goes away. Um, and if I'm Justin Trudeau, I'm thinking, if I get off the hill, and just let this fester for a few months, is that even better? Because the media will still be going at it and they won't have daily press conferences to distract them from these other stories. So um, yeah, I, I could, wouldn't be surprised if Justin Trudeau is getting pretty tired of this by now. Can, can I just maybe wrap up by drawing some parallels, um, not, in, not in the magnitude or the substance, but just in the process to the Mike Duffy scandal, which incidentally was similarly broke by Bob Fife at, at Global. And you know, Fife has a reputation for smelling blood in the water and, um, you know, finishing people off. Um, and I just get the sense, guys, that rapporteur, no rapporteur, question period, theatrics, no question period, theatrics. In a lot of ways, this story is now up to a couple of people. The, the, the Whoever is leaking out of CSIS, whether he or she is satisfied with what they're hearing out of the government, and the signs this week is they're not, given that we continue to see stories. And secondly, the kind of enterprising nature 
of Sam Cooper at Global and and Bob Fife and Stephen Chase at at Global at the Global Mail, who you just get the sense guys won't be satisfied until they they get ahead. And the question to me at this point is just whose head is it going to be? That's a great point to wrap up the first half of the show. When we come back from the break, can you believe it? It's been three years since the WHO proclaimed COVID-19 a global pandemic. We had an important piece in the Hub this week just about the deep economic scars that Canada is now facing as a result of the last three years. We're going to unpack that for you. It's an important conversation right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Okay, guys, on the back half of the show, let's talk about uh, three years after COVID-19, the pandemic declared, if you can imagine that, it's only been three years, it feels like a decade. But instead of just, you know, rehashing I think what a lot of the media is rehashing today and into tomorrow, I want to focus, Sean, on Trevor Toombs' piece for us this week. He's, uh, for Hub listeners, you got to check out Trevor's uh, essay for us on the kind of deep, Trevor's essay for us on the deep economic scars that COVID-19 has left on the Canadian economy. Sean, for the benefit of listeners, unpack Trevor's key arguments for us. What, what's the insight that he's sharing here? Cause I think it's an important one and it's just conspicuously lacking from, you know, the national political conversation at this moment, both at the provincial and federal level. Yeah. First I'll say, you said that the pandemic feels like a decade ago. I'll just say I started the pandemic with no kids. Uh, now I have a two year old and a 12 week old. So it feels like a lifetime, let alone a decade um, <laughs> as evidenced by the bag under my eyes this morning. Uh, I, I think you're right though, in, in all seriousness, that this piece um, by Trevor, which basically, you know, which asks the fundamental question guys is uh, which is what have been the lasting economic consequences of the pandemic? And, and what Trevor finds is that we've been pushed off the economic trajectory we were on pre-pandemic, um, that we've lost um, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in foregone economic output because we're, we've been put on this uh, a permanent track um, that looks different than the one that we're on. And, um, you know, it seems to me uh, no one, as you say, Rudd, you're just kind of grappling with the consequences of that. The numbers are pretty startling. It's like $4,500 per person, $180 billion cumulatively uh, just lost permanently from Canada's economy. But what makes Trevor such a special contributor and why we're so honored to publish him at the Hub is he goes even further. Um, those numbers in and of themselves would be notable, but then he unpacks the underlying causes um, behind this uh, lost output. And what he finds uh, is that most of the most of it is being driven 
by a, a permanent decline in productivity, which raises a whole host of questions, including one that, you know, I, I'm proud that we were raising at the hub uh, some months ago, which is um, maybe, you know, for all of the upsides of remote work and hybrid work, you know, that um, that there, it comes with real costs in the loss in in the form of lost productivity, and it seems so. Sean, just just for layperson, myself included, at times, explain productivity to us because we use this word, and you know, like what the heck is it? It's a kind of it seems like a buzzword at times, like but there is a, a discrete economic calculation underneath it, right? And and so explain what it is and why it's important. Yeah. It, productivity, you know, I think it was Paul Krugman that said, you know, in the long run, productivity is everything, you know, it's basically how much we get out of each worker in the economy. Um, um, because ultimately, that productivity is what drives uh, living standards. And uh, as Trevor unpacks in this piece, we've seen a decline in output per worker um during this period there's different factors at play people seem to be working less than they were prior to the pandemic there have been some people particularly older workers who've just left the labor force altogether uh you know as a result of the pandemic experience but the upshot is uh we're we're getting less out of people in the economy and that's not a good thing especially in an in an era of uh of aging demographics i guess but just in a nutshell our economy is smaller than it would have been were it not for the pandemic. And at its core is this issue of productivity, which, you know, as I said, um, I think introduces some interesting questions about workplace arrangements, you know, the the trade-offs inherent in, in the remote work or hybrid work model. And, um, you know, it's not good, guys. It's not good. Yeah. And the, re- the reason it's not good, Stuart, I think is because productivity is much harder to solve than some of the other problems that... Um, you know, that Trevor shows is responsible for this loss of over $4,000 for every man, woman, and child in Canada in terms of uh, wealth that could have been deployed to not only facilitate each and everyone's respective lifestyles, but also could have been taxed and used by the government to fund healthcare, social programs, and things. So productivity gains are essential, not only for increasing your standard of living, but for increasing the state's capacity to, you know, deliver the services uh, that we want. So, Stuart, you know, we we have a budget coming out shortly from uh, this liberal government. We had the, uh, I think it was the OECD earlier this year, showing Canada dead last in projections of productivity growth amongst the 21 member states over the next three decades. I mean. Th- you, you combine that with, you know, Trevor Toombs calculations of this like permanent loss of per capita income. Like this should be a five alarm fire, Stuart. And yet, you know, where is it in the national conversation? Where is it, you know, at the provincial level? Instead, it just seems spend, spend, spend. We have reports out now that the you know, the federal government on a per capita basis is is spending uh, well above the pre-COVID normal. The government of Ontario, uh, I'm recording this podcast out of Toronto, $11,000 for every man, woman, and child in terms of uh, government per capita program expenditures, all-time high. I don't know, Stuart, I really worry about, you know, you put those two lines together, declining productivity, therefore probably declining national wealth at the individual, collective, and state level, 
surging, you know, deficit financing. Um, at some point, those two things run into each other, and it's going to feel like a concrete wall. Yeah, I, I think um, I was talking to Trevor about his piece before we published it, and I was saying, you know, this is the thing that kind of nags in my mind when I think about the future for my kids. Um, and it's like we have all these economic terms, and you're right to say that productivity is kind of one of those terms that we just hear, and it kind of you know floats in the ether. We don't really think about it specifically, but I think anyone in Canada, especially if you're in Ontario, you feel the malaise. And I think that is something that I was hoping was a temporary pandemic thing. And Trevor's piece is a shock to the system if you were hoping that. And it was kind of reminding me actually of the 2019 Alberta election where Jason Kenney brought a lot of ideas that are traditionally seen as unpopular in politics, cutting corporate taxes and things like that. Economic ideas that are generally either too abstract or too unappealing to make as part of your um, the forefront of your policy platform. Um, and the way they did it was they said, look, we're going to attract businesses here to make jobs. Um, this will be a job creation um, policy. And I was kind of thinking, you know, productivity. I remember Heather Schofield, the former Toronto Star um, business columnist saying, parties don't talk about productivity because it makes voters think that they have to work a lot harder. That's kind of the sense you get as a voter in focus groups. But maybe there's some way you could sell that if you're pure polyev. The idea that you know, let's get the Canadian economy going again. It may take some policies that are traditionally not politically appealing, but the overall goal, I think, is very appealing to Canadians. Especially because it seems like the prevailing view in the federal government, but also the kind of chattering class is we ought not to concern ourselves with GDP per capita. All we need to concern ourselves is uh, GDP itself. And the way you do that, of course, is you raise immigration levels to now north of half a million. And that's just the permanent resident intake, as Mikhail Scudrud observed in a previous episode of Hub Dialogues, when you account for visas and temporary foreign workers, et cetera, the number is something north of a million per year. That's going to increase the overall economic pie, of course, um, because GDP itself is a, a measure of all of the value of goods and services in the economy. But it's going to do nothing to make individuals wealthier to improve the standard of living of individual Canadians. And so, you know, I, I think the one of the biggest problems right now is, as Rudyard observed, is that we are, we seem to be solving a kind of surface level problem, which is just how do we grow the pie without asking ourselves uh, about the living standards of individual Canadians. And the most striking thing, which I forgot to mention in, in Trevor's uh, article, but I'm, I'm glad that, that Rudyard made it is that people will be familiar with the fact that productivity growth has been relatively low in in recent years in fact it's been kind of following falling decade over decade um since the you know the the 1960s or 70s but what trevor observes is in the past few years it's actually fallen into negative territory uh which is striking i mean that is a path to stagnation it's it's not just that living standards are going to slow um, it's that we can see a world where living standards actually decline. And holy smokes, guys, in, in that context, you know, the, the potential consequences for politics and and, you know, social cohesion and all the rest um, could be uh, at significant risk. So I, I don't see really how, you know, if you aspire to lead the country, there could be a bigger issue than ensuring that our standard of living continues to improve. And that means, as as you both have observed, um, putting some ideas on the table um, that uh, that you know in the past may have been may have been put off because productivity was too complicated or sounded scary or whatever. We don't have mm -hmm. time for that anymore.
Well, guys, my uh, final contribution to this discussion is maybe just to really take it out to 30,000 feet and say, I don't know, is it time to rethink some of our attitudes about work? I think something has changed in Canada over the course of the pandemic, maybe even before the pandemic. Um, we are a society that, hey, I get it, likes to consume, likes to have fun, likes to you know realize our human potential through a lot of things that don't involve, uh, yes, the drudgery, the focus, the dedication, the commitment of work. But at some level as a country, we have to get back to work. And I think the pandemic really had two big impacts. One was all those direct tracks, all those direct cash transfers from governments to individuals. I think this kind of really reset people uh, in terms of their, maybe their personal savings. Maybe that was a good thing at the time. Maybe they're spending those savings down and not returning to the workforce. Maybe they'll return to the workforce in the future, but I think it it somehow maybe changed that nagging doubt that a lot of us had pre-pandemic that, look, you have to work hard, you have to save, you have to be financially independent. You can't rely on the government to, in a sense, be your safety net. I think the pandemic proved Again, I'm not saying it was entirely wrong, but it proved that the government was going to be there in a really big way to be your safety net if you needed one. I don't know if that's changed our perceptions about the need to work hard, to work long, and to uh, commit to becoming uh, more financially independent than we might otherwise be. And I guess my final point is, hey, we're having this conversation on Zoom. And I think this, this remote work, this ability to shift work out of the physical into the digital has had a big impact on our productivity. It'd be nice to say, look, we're all working just as hard, but let's face it, uh, <laughs> we're not. Uh, we are, um, you know, having our cake and eating it too. We're getting full-time salaries, employed uh, at our jobs, yet we're not really at our jobs in, I think, the same way as we were before the pandemic. And I think that's showing up in these productivity numbers. I think it's going to be part of the struggle to bring Canada back to its full potential as an economy, uh, you know, possibly for a period of years to come. Hey, so look, I got my rant in today. I don't think I had one last week. So thanks for bearing with me. It feels good to be back with Rudyard's rant. You're right, though. I think I, I think that's a really insightful point um, that, uh, we've not had a conversation about those trade-offs, right? That, and this reflects, you know, so many areas. I remember when the, the, the current government used to say that the environment and the economy go hand in hand, which is a nice thought, um, but there are real trade-offs. And, and it seems to me we need to have a healthy uh, kind of public policy, political conversation about these trade-offs. And this is just another example where, yeah, maybe, maybe people are prepared to trade off lower living standards in exchange for work flexibility and, and all of the rest. Um, but, you know, gosh, we need to do that with our eyes wide open. And I think that's what Trevor's article serves to do is provide a kind of empirical basis to grapple with those uh, trade-offs and their consequences, not just in the short term, um, but but possibly in the long term. Okay, guys, fascinating roundtable conversation. As always, let's do this all again next Friday. But in the meantime, listeners, do check out Trevor Toombs' piece on the homepage of thehub.ca. 
And while you're there, poke around. Lots of great podcasts that Sean's been doing, some terrific reporting by our journalism fellow, Jeff Russ, and of course, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. It was a busy week at the Hub, and we've got some great content for you to dive into this weekend. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.